Section 61 of the Turquoise Storybook, Stories and Legends of Summer in Nature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Turquoise Storybook, Stories and Legends of Summer in Nature by Ada M. Skinner and Eleanor L. Skinner. Hatto the Hermit. THE LEGEND OF A BIRD'S NEST by Selma Lagerlof Hatto the hermit stood in the desert and prayed to God. The storm was on, and his long hair and beard blew about him as wind-whipped grass blows about an old ruin. But he did not brush back the hair from his eyes, nor did he fasten his long beard to his girdle, for his arms were raised in prayer. Since sunrise he had held his gaunt, hairy arms outstretched towards heaven, as untiring as a tree stretching out its boughs, and thus he would remain until evening. It was a great thing for which he was praying. He was a man who had suffered much from the wickedness and dishonesty of the world. He himself had persecuted and tortured others, and persecution and torture had been his portion, more than he could endure. Therefore he had gone forth into the wilderness, had dug himself a cave in the river bank, and had become a holy man whose prayers found hearing at the throne of God. Hatto the hermit stood on the river bank before his cave and prayed the great prayer of his life. He prayed God to send down the day of judgment upon this wicked world. He cried to the angels of the trumpets who are to herald the end of the reign of sin. Round about him was the wilderness, barren and desolate. But a little up the bank stood an old willow with shortened trunk, which swelled out at the top of a round hump like a queer head, and from it new, freshly green twigs were sprouting. Every autumn the peasants from the unwooded flatlands robbed the willow of her fresh new shoots. But every year the tree put forth new ones, and on stormy days the slender, flexible twigs whipped about the old willow as hair and beard whipped about Hatto, the hermit. It was just on this day that a pair of water thrushes, who usually built their nest on the trunk of the old willow between the new twigs, had decided to begin their work. But the wind whipping of the twigs disturbed the birds. They flew up with their bits of dry grass with nothing accomplished. Then it was that they caught sight of old Hatto. No one now living can picture to himself how moss-grown and dried up, how gnarled and black and generally unlike a human being such an old desert hermit can become. His skin clung so close to forehead and cheekbones that his head looked like a skull, and only a tiny gleam down in the depths of his eyeballs showed that there was still life in him. The dried-up muscles gave no curve to the body. The outstretched naked arms were merely a couple of narrow bones, covered with hard, wrinkled, bark-like skin. He wore an old black cloak clinging close to his body. He was tanned brown by the sun and black with dirt. His hair and beard alone were of a lighter shade, for rain and sunshine had faded them to the gray-green hue of the underside of willow leaves. The birds, flying about uneasily and seeking a place for their nest, took Hatto the hermit to be another old willow, cut off by axe and saw in its heavenward striving. 
They flew about him many times, flew away and returned again, took note of the guideposts on the way to him, calculated his position in regard to protection from storm and birds of prey, found it rather unfavorable, but decided to locate there on account of the close vicinity of the stream and the reeds, their chief source of supply. One of the birds shot down suddenly and laid a bit of grass in the hermit's outstretched hand. The storm had abated a little, so that the straw was not blown from his hand at once, but the hermit did not pause in his prayer. "'Come soon, O Lord, come to destroy this world of sin, that mankind may not more increase its load of guilt.' The storm roared out again, and the bit of grass fluttered out of the hermit's great bony hand. But the birds came again and endeavored to erect the cornerstone of their new home between his fingers. Suddenly, a dirty, clumsy thumb laid itself over the grass spears and held them in firm position, while four fingers reached over the palm, making a peaceful niche where a nest would be safe. The hermit continued his untiring supplications, and before his eyes danced fever visions of the day of judgment. The earth trembled, the skies shot fire. He saw the black clouds of hurrying birds beneath the glowing firmament, herds of fleeing animals spread over the earth. But while his soul was filled with these visions of fever, his eyes began to watch the flight of the tiny birds that came and went with lightning dashes, laying new straws in the nest with little chirps of pleasure. The old man did not move. He had made a vow to stand the entire day with outstretched arms in order to force God to hear him. The little thrushes built and built busily all the day, and their work progressed finely. There was no lack of material in this wilderness of rolling ground with stiff grass and brush, and on the river bank with its reeds and rushes. They could not take time for dinner or supper. They flew back and forth, glowing with interest and pleasure, and when dusk came they had reached the peak of their roof. But before evening fell, the hermit's eyes had come to rest on their labor more and more. He watched them in their flight. He scolded them when they were clumsy. He grieved when the wind spoiled their efforts, and he became almost angry when they stopped a moment to rest. Then the sun sank, and the birds sought their accustomed resting place among the reeds, safe from all harm, for no enemy could approach without a warning splash of the water or a quivering of the reeds. When the morning broke, the thrushes thought at first that the events of the preceding day had been but a beautiful dream. They found their guideposts and flew straight to their nest, but the nest had disappeared. They peered out over the moors and flew high up to gain a wider view, but there was no sign of the nest or tree. Finally, they sat down on a stone by the water and thought the matter over. They wagged their tails and turned their heads to right and left. Where were nest and tree? But scarcely had the sun raised itself a hand's breadth over the belt of woods beyond the stream when their trees suddenly came wandering up and stood itself upon the selfsame place it had occupied the day before. It was as black and as gnarled as before, and it carried their nest on the tip of something that was probably a thin, upright bough. The birds began to build again without attempting to ponder further over the many miracles of nature. Hatto the hermit, who chased the little children from his cave and told them it were better for them if they had never seen the light of day. 
he who waded out deep into the mud of the river to hurl curses after the flagged boats filled with gay young people rowing past, he from whose evil glance the shepherds carefully guarded their flocks, he did not return to his place on the river bank because of thought for the little birds. But he knew that not only every letter in the holy book has its own mystical meaning, but that everything that God allows to happen in the natural world has its significance also. And he had discovered what it might mean, this sign of the birds building in his hand. God had willed that he should stand with outstretched arm until the birds had raised their young. Could he do this, then his prayer would be heard. But on this day his glance followed the motions of the birds with greater attention. He saw the rapid completion of the nest. The tiny builders flew around it and examined it carefully. They brought a few rags of moss from the real willow and plastered them on the outside as a finishing decoration. They brought the softest young grass, and the female bird pulled the down from her breast to furnish the inside. The peasants of the neighborhood, who feared the evil power which the prayers of the hermit might have with God, were used to bring him bread and milk to soften his anger. They came now and found him standing motionless, the bird's nest in his hand. "'See how the holy man loves the little creatures,' they said, and feared him no longer. They raised the milk can to his lips and fed him with the bread. When he had eaten and drunk, he drove them away with curses, but they smiled at his anger. His body had long since become the servant of his will. He had taught it obedience by hunger and scourge, by days of kneeling and sleepless nights. Now his muscles of steel held his arm outstretched days and weeks, and while the mother bird sat on her eggs and did not leave the nest, he would not go to his cave even to sleep at night. He learned how to sleep standing with outstretched arm. He grew accustomed to the two uneasy little eyes that peered down at him over the edge of the nest. He watched for rain and hail and protected the nest as well as he could. One day the little mother left her place. Both thrushes sat on the edge of the nest, their tails moving rapidly, holding great consultation and looking very happy, although the whole nest seemed filled with a frightened squeaking. After a little they set out upon an energetic gnat hunt. One gnat after another fell before them and was brought home to that which squeaked and peeped up there in his hand. And the peeping grew more intense whenever the food was brought in. It disturbed the holy man at his prayers. Gently, very gently, his arms sank down on the joints that had almost lost the power of motion until his deep-set, glowing eyes peered into the nest. Never had he seen anything so ugly and so miserable. Naked little bodies with a few scattered down tusks, no eyes, no strength to fly, nothing but six great open beaks. He could not understand it himself, but he liked them just as they were. He had not thought to make an exception of the old birds in his prayer for the great doom, but when he now implored God to release the world through utter destruction, he made a silent exception in favor of these six little helpless creatures. When the peasant women brought him food, he no longer rewarded them with curses. As he was necessary for the little ones up there in his hand, he was glad that people did not let him starve. Soon six little round heads peered all day over the edge of the nest. Old Hatto's arms sank to the level of his eyes more and more frequently. 
He saw the feathers grow out of the red skin. He saw the eyes open and the little bodies round out. The fortunate inheritance of all the beauty with which nature endows the feathered denizens of the air came early into their heritage. And meanwhile, the prayers for the great destruction came more and more slowly from Hatto's lips. He believed he had God's promise that it should come as soon as the little birds were able to fly, and now he stood there seeking an escape from God, for he could not sacrifice these six little ones whom he had watched and cared for. It had been different before, when he had had nothing of his own to care for. Love of the small and the helpless, that love which every little child must teach to the dangerous grown man, this love came over him and made him hesitate. Sometimes he wished he could throw the entire nest into the stream, for he still believed that those alone are to be envied who die without having known care or sin. Was it not his duty to save these little ones from beasts of prey, from cold and hunger and all of the many ills of life? But just as he was pondering on this, a hawk swooped down on the nest to kill the little ones. Hatto caught the robber in his left hand, whirled him around his head, and threw him far out into the stream. Then came the day when the little ones were ready to fly. One of the old birds sat inside the nest trying to push the young ones out on the edge, while the other flew about and showed them how easy it was if they would only try. But as the young ones would not overcome their fear, both old birds flew out before them, showing off all their prettiest arts and tricks. They turned and twisted in the air, they shot up straight as does the lark, or they hung motionless on rapidly fluttering wings. But the little ones would not move. And then Hatto decided to interfere in the matter himself. He gave them a careful push with one finger, and thus ended the dispute. They tumble out, trembling and uncertain, hitting at the air as bats do. They sink down, but rise up again. They find the proper motion and use it at once to regain the nest. The old birds came back to them in happy pride, and Hatto chuckles. It was he who had brought the matter to such a happy conclusion, and now he pondered most seriously the question as to whether a loophole of escape could be found for God. Perhaps, when one comes to think of it, God holds this earth like a bird's nest in his right hand, and perhaps he loves those within it, all the helpless children of earth. Perhaps he is merciful to them whom he had vowed to destroy, just as the hermit was merciful to the little birds. Of course, the hermit's birds were much better than God's human beings, but he could still understand that God might have pity for them in his heart. Next day, the nest was empty, and the bitterness of loneliness came over the hermit. His arm sank slowly down at his side, and it seemed to him that all nature held its breath to hear the roar of the trumpets announcing the last judgment. But in the same moment all the birds returned and settled down on his head and shoulders, for they had no fear of him. And a light shot through the tortured brain of the old hermit. He had lowered his arm every day to look at the birds. And then, as he stood there, the six young birds flying about him, he nodded, smiling to someone whom he could not see, Thou art free, he said. Thou art free. I did not keep my vow, therefore thou needest not keep thine. And it seemed to him that the hills ceased from trembling, 
and that the river sank quietly into its bed to rest. End of section 61 Read by Linda Velwest.